Hey, good morning, guys. Welcome to the Truth About Real Estate podcast. Today, we have Frank Furman, who is a Chief Operating Officer at PadSplit, a co-living startup dedicated to solving affordable housing crisis. Frank is disrupting the affordable housing industry by creating safe, attractive, and respectable co-living environments. A former infantry officer in the U.S. Marine Corps, thanks for that, um, he commanded at the platoon and company levels and served in two tours in Afghanistan. Welcome to the show, Frank. Glad to have you here, and thanks for serving, too. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, so I want to get to know more. Um, you know, you guys are a co-living company, PadSplit. Wanted to talk to you more about the real estate side, the investing side, co-living, and how everything works. But before we get started about on that, how did you get started in real estate anyways? So the the old-fashioned way by kind of stumbling into it. Um, so my uh, I, I have two co-founders in this business. One, uh, Atticus Wong, who's our CEO, and, and John O'Brien, who's our CTO. But uh, Atticus is, is my brother-in-law, so I've known him for a long time. He's kind of uh, always been in the real estate business. Uh, you know, industry as long as he's been working. I've known him for you know, as long as I've known my wife, essentially. Um, and so he, you know, he got his start in Atlanta. He graduated from Yale, moved here, was kind of working through a few companies and uh, was a commercial broker. And after, you know, really kind of in the crash, that business went under, but he's looking around, you know, he's young and he's seeing all these properties selling for $20,000. It's like, maybe I should be buying some properties, you know, that's uh, pretty cheap. Yeah. Spoiler alert. You know, that was, a, that was a good decision and a good timing. So, you know, he'd really been operating on his own since then, you know, he had a partner and so on, but, and I'd been uh, aware of what he was doing. I'd invested in, in a few deals still, still I'm investing in some deals with him and his kind of previous businesses. Uh, but I was, you know, I was out and about, I was I moved a bunch of times. I was living in California. I'd moved uh, to DC and he was moving in the Marine Corps. So I was kind of aware of what he was doing, but um, you know, he'd had he bought a house in 2009 in Southwest Atlanta, and you know, it was it wasn't the sexiest house in the world. It was kind of uh, you know cut up, funny, and so on. But it was selling for cheap, and that's the business he was in. So he buys it, and the two neighbors come by and they say, "Hey, you know, we want to rent rooms in your rooming house." And he's like, "I don't know what you're talking about. You know, this is a rental. You know, I'm gonna put it on that. You know, rent it out through the housing authority." And uh, they're like, well, we'll pay you a hundred bucks a week each. And he's looking at it. He's got four bedrooms. And he's like, okay, I get 800 from the housing authority, four bedrooms, hundred a week. It's like, okay, you know, we'll give it a try. So he did it and did another one in 2012. And during this time, he built up this successful, uh, you know, real estate business with, you know, hundred homes and you know, 550 apartments. But the idea was always kind of kicking around in the back of his head. And, you know, it was more labor intensive and, and, took it the right kind of asset. But what he noticed over that time was that it was more profitable and significantly so. So, you know, I, again, I, I've known him. I was seeing him all the time. I actually moved to Atlanta five years ago, so I was local. Uh, but I'd been in management consulting. I'd been in the Marine Corps. And then, you know, I was kind of working a job where I had a lot of free time and I was kind of bored. And he'd more or less gotten to the point with his businesses that he'd handed off a lot of the day-to-day to, to partners. You know, we meet up and say, hey, you know, this idea has just been, you know, it's been on my mind. It's been a thorn on my side for years and years. Um, this idea of shared housing, this this solution for workforce housing that in some ways happens in every market. You know, it's out there. You know, when I was in grad school, I rented a room from a guy when I was a, you know, a busboy uh, working as a teenager. All the kitchen staff were, you know, lived in a rooming house. So it's, it's something that's in every major metro area, but no one's really done it to scale. Uh, 
especially for workforce. So we kind of thought, hey, you know, what would this take? How would you do it? And so we kind of got started there. And that was several years ago now. But yeah, you know, I kind of made that transition like a lot of people starting as sort of a passive investor who was who's broadly interested. And in some ways, my first uh, real estate deal was a missed one. You know, I, uh, I'd moved to California. Uh, and at the time, this was kind of 2009. And the houses are super cheap in the, you know, this is 29 Palms. So uh, a cheap part of California, to be sure, a big Marine Corps base there. But I'm looking around, like, you know, I should really buy a house here because I'm going to be here for four years. I'll roommates the whole time. I'll easily clear my mortgage. It'll be no big deal. And, you know, the rent to purchase price ratio was just really skewed. You know, rents hadn't dropped, but, you know, you could buy a house there for a hundred grand. And I ended up balking because, you know, the houses were in tough shape and I was probably being too much of a cheapskate and thinking, ah, oh, you know, I don't, I'm going to be busy. I'm going to be working. You know, I could have bought easily for 110, but I really wanted to buy for like 90. You know, I kind of made that uh, mistake that a lot of people make where you think, okay, 110 is good. I'll just, what if I pay 80%? You know, it'll be fine. It's like, no, no, actually you get 80% of what you're, what you're looking at. So, so I didn't do it and I end up renting there. And, you know, you look back on it now and you think, man, I really, I really whiffed. <laughs> I should have bought it. Would have, it would have cooked, you know, the houses, houses that I was looking at are all worth, you know, three times that now. And so given the opportunity a couple of years ago to kind of come in, you know, all in on the operating side, I, I decided to take the plunge. That's a good option. You, yeah. You're learning from, you know, family and friends, you're learning that's part of it. And then even yeah, in the beginning, everyone does, the first one's always the hardest and going from mm -hmm. like, taking a hundred K property, which is nowadays is super cheap. <laughs> and you realize like, why didn't I do it? And it's just a part of being scared to do it because it's like, you know, the financial yeah. risk, but at the same time, the numbers always make sense, but then people it's hes people's hesitancy to pull the trigger is because the liability, the risk, what yeah. happens, what if, right? But yeah. but if you didn't do it, here's what happened. And all of us see that, like, oh man, I should have done that. Because really mm -hmm. after realizing, hey, real estate's a long-term asset and you're getting rental income, you're house hacking it because you're living there and getting some supplemented mortgage rental income, which paying down your mortgage anyways, and the house is most likely not gonna drop like crazy, even at 100 k how much could it go for? 20K? Not really, right? You can't even right. buy that. You can't even buy a bathroom for 20K right now in my, <laughs> my area. You know, it just, it's crazy exactly. how, how it is. And even if you look over the decades, housing just keeps going up and up and up. Even if there's downturns, it's going to go up again, right? It's just yeah. a matter of time. And if you have like, you know, people helping, especially with rental income, paying down that mortgage, that's a big substantial value add, right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I missed on that one, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, try not to miss on too many now. Yeah. And even nowadays, I think people still miss on some, but now you sure. know, you see some of your experience too. You go, that's actually a good deal. Like make sure we double check, like don't take that risk of missing when you mm -hmm. realize, Hey, that's like, makes sense. You know, financially it makes sense for the team, for the group, for the company. Yeah. yeah. So you're going from like, for example, you know, going from a f applied physics, going from aeronautical engineering and, you know, U S Marine Corps and jumping into real estate, that's a big change, right? Most people say, why would you do that? You're at a great point in a uh, career. Why would you change to real estate investing? That's risky. Yeah. You know, there's, I mean, there's risk in everything. That's for sure. Um, and you know, I've worked, uh, I'd worked in R and D that's my last posting in the Marine Corps was managing a portfolio of R and D programs, uh, you know, alternative energy generation kind of microgrids and and that sort of side of things um and i did i did like it a lot but uh 
you know, to be honest, it was slow moving. And some of that was just kind of the, the nature of kind of working in, in government funded kind of research at that point. But, uh, you know, it was always kind of, uh, for me, I've always been interested in a lot of things. You know, when I look at, uh, it was part of actually why I enjoyed uh, management consulting was kind of different problems all the time, you kind of change it up. So I have, uh, I have a little bit of wanderlust. So I like kind of, uh, I find all, you know, sort of business problems interesting, whether it's, uh, you know, anything, even if it's an unsexy topic like waste management or something, you still kind of find what's interesting, which is, you know, what are your value drivers? You know, how do you think about costs? How do you think about fixed versus variable? And how do you kind of, you know, operate more efficiently? So, you know, it's less always around like the technology for me or, or kind of anything specific. You know, I just kind of, I'm interested by a lot of things. Nice. That's funny. And actually, one thing too, like I actually used to work with the Marine Corps for like eight mm. plus years. I did a PKI network encryption security and like trained the engineers in cybersecurity for many okay. years. And that was fun because there's so many great guys out there. And a lot of them do real estate, do, do other side hustles, and then they mm. support the government in the, in the country, right? Mm. So it's kind of nice to see that too. A lot of friends that over there too. Um, so I wanted to ask you too, like for example, like you guys started and you guys started learning about, you know, co-living, I would say by accident, but at the same time, because people started asking about the availability and the numbers made sense. But even when you first started doing that um, in your partners, like, mm -hmm. you know, there's like multi-unit, single family homes, fix and flips, there's um, other ways, but I don't see most people jumping into co-living and actually creating a co-living company based off of it. Yeah. You know, and uh, so that's true. Uh, maybe there's good <laughs> and bad to it. It makes it defensible for us. I yeah. think there's a few reasons for that. One is it is a, it's a little bit of out, it's a little bit outside many investors' experience, particularly the the part that we do. In that, you know, it's we're a venture back, you know, tech company at our core, you know, a marketplace company, and it's funny. You know, you talk to investors and they say, "Oh, you know, I get it, I get it," and they're like, "You know, but I don't know if I would live in this kind of setting," you know. And you think, "Well, of course not." You know, you're a decamillionaire you know, venture capital investor, you know, of course, you're not going to rent a room, you know, you have your own house. Um, so there's, there's an element of that, that, uh, and, and you see it in all sorts of uh, investors, you know, you, you know what you know, and you know what you know, based on your experience. So considering that most real estate investors have some means, you know, enough to invest in property, the concept of real workforce housing, oftentimes is a little bit of a, an intellectual stretch, you know, so that, that takes up part of the market. And the other piece that is, interesting is there's a lot of, uh, culturally, we've kind of gotten away from the idea of co-living and sharing space. And, you know, a lot of people, they talk to me and they say, oh, you know, Frank, this is interesting. I bet my kids would understand it. You know, it's kids, they share stuff and whatever. And I'm like, no, you know who would understand is your grandmother, you know, because this was the norm for singles in the United States and, and really is essentially anywhere that single working adults boarded, you know, they rented rooms because, everyone shares space. I mean, I have six people in my house. It's not because, uh, you know, I'm crazy. It's because I have a family, you know, but I share a bathroom, you know, it's, it's, but you know, everyone shares bathrooms in my house. It's the way it works. So this kind of cultural concept of, Hey, I'm a person, I've got my own space. I've got my own kitchen. I've got my own bathroom and so on is, is actually pretty new, you know, and, and perhaps not totally sustainable as you can see, you know, there's lots of people who can't afford kind of that base, uh, you know, studio apartment and so on. Um, so really, it's a matter of kind of getting back to our roots on that front, kind of reintroducing this concept, which we did not invent. You know, it's been around for years and years and years. Um, you know, we want to make it better. We want to harness technology in a way that no one's done previously and, and, and be cutting edge on that front. But it's really kind of reintroducing it 
to people who it's been outside of their experience. Um, and then the other piece of it is there's a lot of, um, you know, in part due to the lack of understanding or familiarity with concept, there's but there's a lot of concern around, oh, this must be a real pain to operate. I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, I get asked all the time, you know, Frank, this is super interesting, but strangers living together. I mean, there's got to be a million fights, you know, all this stuff. And and you, you look at it and you say, look, you know, I've been a landlord. Um, husbands and wives fight. Boyfriends and girlfriends fight. You know, brothers roughhouse and fight because they know each other. You really only fight with people, you know, you know, that's that's the reality of it. Strangers may be passive aggressive. You know, they may complain they may be petty. All those things are true. They may eat the last slice of pizza that someone left in the fridge. You know, they're not always best friends, but they rarely fight because they don't care that much. You know, people want privacy. So, you know, this concern that people have, you know, oh, I'm going to be I'm going to be a landlord I'm going to be running this property and people are going to be fighting all the time. It's like, no, no, actually, you should worry about that in your normal rentals, you know, because families fight. Um, strangers avoid each other, you know. So and then that's part of the problem that we've been trying to solve through kind of operations and technology. So, you know, we staff the 24-7 call center. All of the resident dispute issues come to us. So, you know, oh, Matthew ate my peanut butter or, oh, Matthew looked at me funny. You know, those things come to us and our team is trained to de-escalate those conflicts, whether through our rating system or, or allowing transfers. So building in that kind of flexibility so that you can have a release valve and, and manage those conflicts because they do arise. You know, some people are tough to live with. You know, we've all had roommates. It's, it's part of life. So, um, you know, how do we improve technology and improve kind of the underwriting to kind of get there? But, um, but yeah, really it's, it, there's the big barrier for us is a lot of people aren't familiar with it. They aren't ready and they have some misconceptions. So part of our job is education. Part of it's kind of solving those problems for people. Um, and then oftentimes once they get it up and running, they say, okay, well, this actually, this isn't that far. And, oh, this isn't different, that different from when I was in student housing or, or what have you, or, or from the golden girls, you know, this is uh, it's not that far in a concept when you get down to it. Nice. That actually makes sense too. Cause when you think about like for, for many of us who went to college, you probably lived in a dorm for at least your first year and you met mm -hmm. random people, right. And you yep. stayed together and you shared things together and like, you know, you actually build relationships that way too. And hopefully mostly good. Sometimes people get some bad, but the ability to switch makes it a lot easier too. Um, even though you're moving in and out. And yeah, I think, you know, as we get older, we realize, Hey, okay. Yeah. We actually done it a lot. And I see nowadays, even in San Francisco, the Bay area, a lot of people do get together and they, you know, say, Hey, you know, instead of getting a studio for the X amount, why don't we get a two bedroom, three bedroom, four bedroom, seven bedroom and split yeah. the cost because it makes more sense because now you get a way nicer, way bigger space, more utilization. You build your own community. You form relationships with people who are kind of like, like minded, like active mm -hmm. people who are really active, people who are really tech savvy, people who are fashionable, people get together and they start forming new friends. That's the fun part. I think when you're young and single, you can definitely do that. And mm -hmm. even you mentioned too, as you have singles in uh, even at an older age, they want company you know you don't always yeah. want to be alone in your house especially nowadays with pandemic do you you know it's nice to have like a, your own little um sphere and then yeah. be in that group and have friends and you know pay a, a lower rent um and like you know less work but yeah like, even friends will eat your pizza right it doesn't matter yeah. <laughs> it, it'll, it'll come about yeah exactly and, and i mean the thing for me and part of why i'm really passionate about the business is um this is something that i've always done you know i i rented a house and rented out rooms to my buddies. You know, I share space now. This is how everyone drives down their cost of living on a per person basis. It's what, you know, normal people do. That being said, 
you know, when I've, uh, when I did it when I was in grad school or in the Marine Corps, or whatever, you know, college, um, when you are coming at it in a, with, you know, high level of social credibility, you know, high level of social network, it's pretty easy, right? You know, if I move to San Francisco tomorrow, well, I, I don't know who would want me to move in with my, you know, three children and wife and so on, but let's assume I'm, you know, I'm a single guy or, or whatever. Um, you know, people say, oh, you know, went to college. Okay, here's a resume. You know, we feel comfortable, so on and so forth. Um, we serve the workforce, right? We serve people who are not making as much money, who struggle to afford rent. They're probably the people who the most need these tools, who most need to share space. Yet, you know, if you didn't go to college, if you don't have kind of the resume, you're working in kind of a, you know, hospitality or food service or as a security guard, it's a little bit harder to roll into a new city for work and say, hey, you know, I don't have much of a resume. You know, maybe I don't have the same level of technical fluency and so on, technical ability. Uh, who wants me to room? You know, it's harder. And, you know, the barriers to entry are so high in housing where if you look at, you know, in particular class C apartments, you know, I may be able to get away with one month security deposit, just one month's rent up front. But in the low income space, it's oftentimes first and last month's rent or double security deposits. So the barriers are even higher. Um, and there's reasons for that credit scores. You know, we can all, we can all get into, it. we have to do our own underwriting, but the barriers are higher. So our mission is, you know, how do we bring those same tools that are not revolutionary? They're not uh, from a different world. They're things that we've all done but they're easier for me to do than for a lot of people. And so how do you kind of democratize it? How do you bring it to everybody? And that makes sense. And I'm actually glad that you guys are like, for example, you're helping with uh, workforce housing, which is really needed. And like you mentioned too, there's, you know, people, all different industries, um, job, you know, different pay gaps and, you know, the, the ability to afford it too. And there's a lot of singles out there and even couples, but, to get in a nice place, to get uh, closer to, you know, more convenient. It is harder because, you know, landlords do scrutinize based on credit scores first and, you know, financials, sure. and it makes sense. And I get it because landlord has liabilities too. But now you're giving them the options to say, hey, you know, you can make more money. You're actually reducing your risk. Here's how we do it as a company. And here's how we help you vet the people out and make sure they try to you know, create some more um, leverage on that and reduce your risk. And then, mm -hmm. you know, owners start like, opening up and say, oh, yeah, that, Makes sense. I see why. Like, if I'm getting X amount traditionally, you're going to give me X amount and help me reduce my risk from turnover, from you know liability. Then you know why not take a chance? Now they need the understanding of okay, I'll take a chance. How does co living work? How do I work with you, the tenants? How do how does everything get resolved? So that's more the educational piece on how to um, help investors and also how to help renters do this. But mm. financially, the model makes total sense. It's more about okay, comfort. Comfort comes with education, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, our view, um, you know, the numbers do make sense and everyone kind of gets it at a, at sort of a high level, you know, it's, it's not all that complicated, of course, you know, okay, if I've got a big house, I'm running by the room, I make more so on and so forth. But, you know, our growth engine is investor outcomes, you know, so that's what we're hyper-focused on. And when investors get a good outcome, right, they, they generate a above market yield, they do what all people do and they brag about it and they tell their friends and then they do more of it, right? So they're, you know, people respond to incentives. So for us, it's all about how do we really kind of get involved to not guarantee, because that's impossible, but encourage, uh, you know, those outcomes as much as possible. And when that's happening, you know, our conviction is that the reason that affordable housing is so tight is that there's not a ton of financial incentive for developers and so on. So our view is if you can make it worth the while, you know, if you can deliver above market returns, well, then you don't really have a problem around affordable housing because you're going to tap into the creativity and capital and, you know, intellectual effort of private investors who 
when they're seeking yield can be incredibly tenacious and, uh, you know, dedicate a ton of resources to, uh, to things. So, you know, for us, it's okay, how do you make it profitable? And if you do that, you can make it possible. And why, like, you know, in co-living spaces, like, even there's a lot of companies in the area, like there's mm -hmm. different models of co-living. Uh, why specifically did you guys choose like, you know, workforce housing and even uh, furnishing and creating all the utilities in one seamless transaction versus others who say they'd split it so many different ways? Sure. So the, the main reason we're focused on the workforce side of things is we just view that as the biggest uh, opportunity in the market, both in terms of the, the number of people. So, I mean, as an example, there's, there's lots of more upmarket co-living companies, you know, they cater to, to young, relatively well-to-do, you know, successful people in San Francisco who are, who are working and earning, you know, probably a, a good living, but can't quite afford the, the super premium zip, right? But they want to be in the city, you know, they want to be close to things. It's okay, they, they share space and that's fine, you know, it's probably a great business. Um, it's not the one I'm in, you know, but, you know, I, I, I'm rooting for them. Uh, makes a lot of sense. And you know, but our view is however many people there are, and there's a bunch of them, there's far, far, far more people, just a much larger opportunity for people who are not doing so, so hot and earning, you know, 90 grand a year that are earning more like $35,000 a year, $30,000 a year. So, um, and the other piece of it is a lot of investors don't want to work in that space, you know, other co-living companies and so on, you know, it's, it's easy in some ways, uh, to cater towards that kind of upmarket crowd. Um, whether it's you know, in terms of underwriting or, or expectations and so on, it's it's harder to deal to the affordable. So our view is it's a big opportunity with a ton of defensibility. And then as far as how we structure the, the spaces and so on, um, our view is that one of the big challenges that you have in affordable housing generally, but really just uh, you know workforce housing is it's pretty complicated. And, I, and I'll give you an example. I mean, the furniture is a good one. Um, a lot of people rent furniture in this demographic and they pay really high interest rates and so on. And it's, it's problematic. And if you look a lot of evictions in this country, what happens is, you know, landlords are, are kind of lazy and they're landlord focused. And I say this as, as a landlord, but uh, you know, rents due on the first, why is it on the first? Cause it's easy for accounting. It's easy for the lender. You know, it's, it's the system I do. Okay, fine. Um, but it's not that easy for someone, you know, people pay bills sequentially. So these, these rental furniture companies, they'll bill at the end of the month, you know, your cell phone bill will bill whenever. And, you know, I get the bill for my furniture on the 25th. Well, I'm going to pay that because I don't lose my couch. I get my cell phone bill on the 28th. I'm going to pay that. I want to lose my cell phone. And then the rent bill comes on the first. I'm like, ah, I, don't, I don't have the money. Oops. Now that's a bad idea, but it is how people operate. Um, so our view is how do you make it as customer focused as possible? And so, we bill weekly and the idea is it's tied to when people get paid. It's much more intuitive for people. You're kind of keeping on, on folks. So, so, you know, when's the first of the month? I'm not sure, but when's Friday? Well, I know when that is, that's when I get paid. That's when I get my bill. And by rolling everything up into one utilities, furniture, one, you're driving your costs down. So people aren't renting furniture and paying, you know, this kind of upfront costs and, and these high interest rates, you know, it's built in, but also it's, it makes it simple. So it's, Hey, I've, I've got one bill to pay. I can focus on paying that one bill. I'm not worried about here's the furniture bill and here's this. Yeah, they still pay their cell phone bill, you know, all well and good. But, you know, I don't have to worry about the power bill and all that. Uh, and then the other piece is it, it just drives down your cost because, you know, take your power bill. You may not have thought hard about it, but you probably have a, you know, $150 deposit with the power company. Um, okay, that's fine. 
I have I have the same thing. You know, I have Georgia Power here. I'm sure I have a deposit paid whenever I I set it up in my house. Haven't thought about it, but you know, I do it. Okay, fine. But I'm splitting it amongst a bunch of people and and whatever. But if you're setting up your first place, you know, you're doing that, and that's a pretty big bill. You know, when you factor in security deposit, first month's rent, maybe first and last month's rent, and your security deposit for power and your security deposit for gas and so on. And it costs, you know, really a, a couple thousand bucks to get in. So how do you lower that barrier to entry and say, okay, well, the owner set up the the power. Okay, it's paid. It's all getting rolled in. But, you know, I'm coming in really with one week and a moving fee and it's just a couple hundred bucks. You know, it's 10 times as easy to get people in the door. Furniture is already provided. You don't have to worry about lining that all up. Um, so it's all about how do you make it as customer focused and customer friendly as possible to get people in and you want people to get in and start paying. You know, that's that's how you make your yield. And that's a that's a great benefit because, for example, when you think about traditional rentals, like you know, like you talked about, you know, tenants gotta do all these things. They have to pay moving costs too. Sometimes when they move out, cleaning costs mm-hmm. out and moving costs out, and the time it takes them to buy furniture and just um, stage, you know, like set it up for that space exactly. Because then each house is a little bit different. You're not gonna use all your furniture. You might have to sell some, throw some away. So there's a lot of unfactored costs into moving, and just time and um just stress right but exactly. yeah even the utility part of it too i guess one question i would ask about the utility is you know the landlord would set it up pay all the deposits set everything up who if you guys are charging um weekly fees or re- weekly rent and it's including the utilities how do you get who manages the utility bills and like how do you get reimbursements for that because it changes great. every month <laughs> great question so uh the idea is we work with landlords to build it into the pricing okay. and Part of that is how you set up the space. And that's outside of uh, the experience of a lot of landlords because they haven't been paying the utility bills. And that's also part of the reason why we have affordable housing challenges is that the kind of things that I do in my own house because I'm a cheapskate who pays the utility bills. So I'm trying to drive them down all the time and I'm turning off all the lights and, you know, putting in low flow shower heads and yelling at my kids to, you know, cut their shower short and all that kind of thing uh, typically isn't being done in a lot of rental properties, right? So, because if you're the landlord, why do it? You're not paying the bill. And if you're the tenant, it's like, what, am I going to make a CapEx investment in this property I don't own? Like, that's not going to happen. So, you know, what we do is we're trying to align incentives. So the landlord is paying that bill. And so anything, any way they can drive down those costs, that's money in their pocket. So, you know, it's really hard to get people to take short showers. That's true. But it's really easy to install a Niagara 1.25 gallon per minute low flow shower head that is $9 on Amazon. So people should do that. And that's kind of part of our playbook as we work with with landlords, you know, aerators in the sinks, low flow toilets. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a few big things you can do, you know, use a smart thermostat, you lock it with a pin. When you control the thermostat, you're controlling probably 60% of your electricity spend. Um, and, and it makes a huge difference. So People will still be wasteful. People take too long showers. You know, people leave the lights on. All that's true. But if you control the big components, um, you can, again, it'll be variable, but you can make it variable at a level that you can live with and easily budget for. And, you know, some months you do a little bit better, some months you do a little bit worse. But the idea is you go through. And then, of course, there are there are mechanisms you can pass through costs if, if people have kind of damaged things or, or that. But uh, the idea is to just to budget for it. Same as a uh, same as you would do in short-term rentals, you know, in Airbnb, you're not, you know, you're, you're building in your utility costs into what you're pricing the rooms at. You aren't worried about, oh, I'm trying to bake in 30 bucks for this person for this weekend and, and so on. 
Yeah, that makes sense too. And yeah, especially both ways, because I see a lot of landlords, they don't want to, you know, add all the CapEx improvements. I'm like, you really should, because if you think about it, even as a, even if you're like passing it on to tenants to pay all the utilities, the fact, if you can help them save money through like all means of electricity, water and everything, it's better for them too. And they'll want to stay longer because they know they're like living in a house that's super energy efficient, water efficient, and then they're saving money that way. So they're willing to pay more too for the rental because they have less to deal with. But yeah. of course I get the other part too. Like if you included, Hey, unlimited water, unlimited electricity, some people will abuse it. But when you sure. add in other factors saying, Hey, if you pass this level, then you're going to take on the billing because you know, standard water level, just call it hundred dollars a month and you go spend $200 a month. Well, I'm going to rebuild you for the hundred extra month if you're doing that like abusively yeah yeah exactly so yeah it's it's difficult but yeah you want to a lot of it's really kind of controlling the space and kind of line those incentives nice and then you know from a landlord's perspective when you start thinking about like why would i choose as an option for example like hey i can just do traditional i might do airbnb if my county allows it or you know co-living space like how do you talk to landlords and educate them about the co-living opportunity yeah, so the way that we think about it is people do it because of because of yield, right? And in terms of the, you know, you're trying to do that cost benefit analysis both for yourself and then also for the asset. So um, for certain kind of assets, you're best off. Your highest and best use is doing traditional rental, right? And others maybe a short term rental. Um, for others, it's it's us. So we like kind of bigger properties, more bedrooms. And, and one of our initial insights was. For the right kind of property, it's it's much more profitable, but not for everything. So we, you know, we like a lot of bedrooms, that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's more revenue generating units for us. Uh, and then same thing on the cost benefit analysis on you know your time and level of effort. I mean, obviously, most people are farming this out to property managers, but you know, we're a lot less work than a short term rental, right? Because it's long term tenants. People are there about ten months on average, so. You know, you're not doing these kind of weekly cleans and turns, and it's a different kind of level of service than a short-term rental, but it's more than a traditional rental. You know, you have more turnover, you have, you have more work. So it's kind of in, in the middle there somewhere. Um, but I mean, our view is, you know, the numbers have to make sense for, for landlords to do it. And, and it's about having the right kind of host, the right kind of asset. And so to do that, you know, we talked earlier about how involved we get to generate those outcomes, which is our, our growth lever. But I mean, I mean, we get involved early, oftentimes pre-acquisition, you know, every day I'm talking to investors and they're saying, Hey, you know, what do you think about one, two, three main street? And I'll say, ah, it's on a cul-de-sac. You know, I, it's too tight on the street parking. Don't love it for this. Or, Oh, I, I really like it. It's corner lot or it's close to public transit or, you know, that many bedrooms at this price. I really feel good about it. Um, and so, you know, because we want good outcomes. So we're we're oftentimes getting really involved at that point. We have an ecosystem of preferred vendors who do a lot of the work, right? They're buying in this buy box. They're, you know, general contractors who know how to kind of optimize the property, uh, the way that we've kind of trained people and managers, the whole bit, lenders. So, um, you know, building out that ecosystem is really important to make it easy for people. But, um, you know, that's so that's, that's kind of on us to do. But, um, but yeah, it's... People do this because they they make a lot more money. That's that's kind of the bottom line. Um, you know, as I work with investors, you know, looking at properties, I tell them, you know, you should probably be looking to get about a ten percent unlevered return on cost, which is really about double you can do in, in traditional rentals. And if you're not doubling, you're probably doing something wrong. It's the wrong kind of asset. You know, you're you're paying the wrong amount, that kind of thing. Um, and then obviously, once you lever up, you can do a lot better from there. 
so it's it's about finding the right fit on that front but it's you know it's it, it essentially works in any metro area you know or any close to any sort of uh, employment center so yeah, it's pretty broad brush but um it's it's for the right kind of asset right kind of right kind of investor Nice. Let's talk about the numbers actually too, because I'm really yeah. interested too. Because you know, I study a lot of different methods and different styles mm -hmm. of uh, housing and investing. But like, for example, just from even your markets or even in any market, like, how do you run the numbers of traditional Airbnb and co living? And like, what do you see in terms of numbers for the you know investor side? Sure. So, and, and we have an earnings calculator on our on our website that that automates a lot of this. So uh, again, I am a, I'm a former Marine. So making me do math in public is a little bit, uh, you know, I, I don't know how I feel about that, uh, Matthew, but uh, the way I think about it is, you know, you, you look at a traditional rental, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a four, two, and you know, that's, you're beginning to get to the side, maybe it's 1800 square feet or something. So bigger property, um, maybe it's in a transitioning neighborhood and so on. So you look at it and part of our playbook is, okay, how do you capture and monetize underutilized space? So maybe it has a, a basement that can be finished out or a living room or dining room or some combination of turn in bedrooms. So, you know, we look at it through that lens and say, hey, this 4-2 could easily be a 6-2, right? And we, you know, okay, fine. Now maybe it rents for 1700 bucks traditionally, right? Because it's, uh, again, not in San Francisco, clearly, but, uh, you know, in Atlanta or Houston or Richmond or New Orleans or Jacksonville or Tampa, or, you know, or Indianapolis, one of the markets we're in. So, uh, you know, kind of solid working class traditional rental. And you'd be doing fine, right? If you did as a traditional 4-2, ran out for 1700 bucks, you know, you pay your property manager maybe 10% pay some maintenance each month and, you know, so you're clearing maybe just shy of 1500 bucks, right. A month before your note. Uh, hey, you're doing, that's pretty good. You know, you're, you're doing fine. Maybe you're kind of all in on that property for, you know, say just over, you know, $200,000, right. In this, in these kind of uh, markets. Uh, so, okay. You know, Hey, that's, that's a pretty good return. That's maybe five, 6%. You know, you're, you're feeling pretty good about that. That's that's a solid return for a traditional rental. You get debt on it, feel pretty good. You know, your debt service coverage ratio will be okay. Maybe, you know, just, you know, maybe 1.3, you know, you, you feel pretty good about it. Well, we look at that house and we say, well, it's a six two in our book. And, you know, your rooms are probably going to be about more like 650, you know, or at least, you know, certainly more than 600 bucks a month, you know, bill weekly. So all of a sudden your gross revenue goes from 1700 bucks to say, you know, 3,800 bucks. Right. And okay. You know, you're going to have some churn. People are there, you know, for 10 months on average, but your occupancy tends to be about the same, right? So a traditional rental, you rent it out, uh, you know, two years and then it's time to turn it, you turn it and you spend a month fixing up the property and turning, you spend a month leasing it up. Okay, that's about eight percent vacancy over the course of two years and two months. Well, our average stays about ten months. Takes us about you know a week or two to refill a room. We still get to you know not over ninety percent occupancy, right? So, and your turn costs are lower because instead of turning the whole unit, you're just turning a room. And room turns really cost you know fifty to one hundred bucks, right? You're you're changing the mattress cover, so your your turn costs are a little bit lower over time, or a fair amount lower over time. But again, you know, your gross rent, you know, call it, let's say you're 3,600 bucks monthly net of, uh, you know, vacancy and, uh, you know, collections risk, that sort of thing. Okay, fine. Well, you're more than double the gross rent. Like that's, that's the big secret, right? That, you know, from there, the math gets pretty simple. So 
okay, you're more than double the gross rent. You know, you pay pad split because you know I have kids. We gotta you gotta pay your fee to pad split. You know, we charge a percentage of the revenue. You're paying your property manager maybe a bit more. Maybe they're taking you know ten uh, percent, but of a bigger number. So they're super happy because they're making three hundred bucks a month, and they're 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 as happy as can be. You're paying utilities. That's a couple hundred bucks, but you're probably clearing you know, call it $2,500 a month. And you look at that and say, well, I was doing 1500 bucks before, just shy of 1500 bucks. Now I'm doing 2500 bucks. The The mortgage is going to be the same and your debt's going to be the same. You know, your property taxes are the same. All that's the same. And well, that's an extra $1,000 every month in my pocket, essentially for free, um, you know, for a fully loaded kind of turnkey kind of service. So so that's the magic. You know, it's not that uh, people love working with me or, you know, I'm so enjoyable that people want to talk to me to, to bring on more properties. Um, it's because they make more money, right? It's a yield generating instrument. So they look at that and say, okay, great. I'm making an extra thousand bucks a month. Now, all of a sudden, instead of that 6% return, I'm at a nine, or, you know, or 10. And I'm, uh, then I lever up and I'm at a 30% return. And that's, uh, you know, while you're owning this real asset that uh, is going to appreciate in value over time. And those are some great numbers too. Like when I look at that and hear that and I see the numbers, I, I realize it too. And, you know, um, that's definitely becomes also more passive too, because for example, I have extra protection in my opinion, because for example, you have property managers already managing property and then you have your company too. And then, you know, landlords are going to ask you some questions, which I'm going to ask you next, but looking at the numbers, if you're going to generate me a thousand more per month and it's not guaranteed, but when you look at historical ratings, that makes sense. Like, you know, then why don't landlords take more, um, take more risk think about more co-living and learn getting educated to really consider it as an mm -hmm. option because it's a different kind of option but financially it makes a lot of sense and it's worth the opportunity to actually look into it deeper and like say hey this makes sense for my market for my property and start doing that mm -hmm. but as a as an investor landlord i my couple questions that come up in my mind that people ask me is like okay well one is like um does pad split or even other co-living have a master's insurance are they taking a master lease on it and then they're subleasing it individually to these people but it's a different terminology because it's an in your master lease versus as the landlord side mm -hmm. um the next thing comes up too would be like okay well in san francisco you know there's all these rental restrictions rules even co-living rules how does that apply and i'm sure most investors say well these are landlord friendly states with more relaxed policies so mm -hmm. it makes more sense for those markets versus rental restriction markets? Yeah. So on, on the first part, um, technically we are signing a master lease for every property. Part of the reason we do that is to make it easier for insurance and lending and so on. Um, it's a cash flow lease. So again, you know, it's kind of, uh, that's the way that it works and we are subletting, but it's, uh, we are signing that, that master lease. It's how it's structured. Um, as far as the regulations piece, it's, it's a really interesting question. And the answer is, it really depends because it's a hyper-local kind of regulatory regime. There are lots of places in the United States where this is gray area. There's lots of places where it is probably 100% illegal. And there's other places where it's really quite permissive and you know you can kind of more or less do whatever you want within reason. And what I'd say with experience, what I tell every investor is, you know, let's say you're in Atlanta, which has among the most permissive uh, definitions of family in the country, which is, you know, we're located here, which is why we got our start here, but it's it's a good market for in that regard. Um, but then you cross over into East Point, Georgia, which is much more restrictive. Well, okay, 
code enforcement is not going door to door and counting toothbrushes. That's not how it works. You know, it's even in a less landlord friendly state. That's not how it works. You know, there's no uh, SWAT team, you know, counting and asking people who they're related to and doing blood tests. You know, is isn't how it works. Um, so you have less of a top down challenge. What you have is bottom up challenges, which is why part of the reason why we get very involved with investors, because, you know, certain unlike a traditional rental where you can kind of do whatever you want, people will complain, you know, HOAs may be really tricky and, you know, some neighborhoods really don't like rentals. There's a whole lot you can do. Um, this is new and it's, you know, it's workforce housing and a lot of people don't like, you know, everyone likes affordable housing, but not in their neighborhood, you know, it's kind of the, the rule of thumb. So, you know, you want to be very intentional about how are you being harmonious with the, the neighborhood and, and so on. So, you know, that's part of why we get involved to say, look, what drives neighbor complaints? It's not, oh, there's six people sharing a house. There's six people sharing my house. No one cares. Um, but my grass is always cut. My trash is always taken out, you know, and so on and so forth. People care about cars. They care about parking on grass or things that make the neighborhood look bad, right? So um, they care about noise, you know, all those sorts of things. So as I work with investors, it's okay. As you look at this specific asset, you know, it isn't just, oh, this is San Francisco versus, you know, Oakland. It's let's look at this house on this street, you know, imagine it with six bedrooms tomorrow. What does that look like? Well, Hey, we're, we're two blocks from public transit. That means you won't need that many cars, which means, uh, you know, no one's going to park in front of someone's mailbox. Hey, could be a really good fit on that basis. Or, you know, oh, it's in a, it's in an HOA. Are you self-selecting for neighbors who are going to really be all up in your business? You know, if you have to paint your mailbox a certain color, are you just begging for people who are going to, you know, <laughs> dying to know what you're doing in the property? So it's much more about blocking and tackling and picking the right asset. And, and it means turning down business, right? So we, again, all the time, we people say, I want to deal with this property. And I say, eh, I don't think it's a great fit. I think you should wait for a better one because, you know, this one you're asking for trouble or, oh, this one's a very private lot and there's lots of parking or it's parking on the back. And um, so that's why we're, that's part of the reason why we're so involved with that is to, you know, it's not rocket science, but it's getting people and investors to see properties through this specific lens, through this slightly different use, right? Because you know, you're going to have more stress on the parking and transit and so on. So how do you kind of work through that and set yourself up for, for success on that front? But you know, in some places it's no risk and some place there's always some risk, right? That's the nature of real estate. You can always have a neighbor across the street who doesn't like what you're doing. And if they complain enough, code enforcement will find a reason to give you a ticket. So how do you mitigate that risk as much as possible through these frameworks we've developed um, to you know, give you the best shot to succeed? Nice. And then how do you guys um, you know, deal with insurance? And like, you guys have like the company Passport has their own policy for the homeowners. And then on top of that, the landlord should have like landlord protective policies, umbrella policies on top. Yeah. So landlords have to have their own policy. We've got a, a network of providers who we work with who will write specific policies for this, this type of uh, type of use. And in general, you know, there isn't really that much different from traditional policies, right? The big risks to the property, of, you know, hurricane or, you know, hailstorm or what have you are the same. You know, we, we get blamed for a lot, but controlling the weather, you know, isn't really, isn't really our fault. So that's about the same. We do have some mechanisms in place to help uh, landlords with kind of unexpected costs that are due to the nature of the model, whether it's passing costs through to the members, the residents in the house, or 
uh, you know, we have we have a couple of mechanisms built in if 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 there's issues with damage and so on. But it's uh, it's mostly done through these partners we've developed to provide the insurance. Nice, yeah, because I know some uh, some insurance companies you always have to double check, especially if you're doing different styles, like you know, a traditional rental versus um, co living or Airbnb. Even then, yeah. you have to check to make sure that company allows it, but you have a network which allows it, which is great because now they feel more comfortable that way. The next question I would come up as an investor too would be okay, well, how do you define the right clientele to rent the property, and how does that work with other roommates too to really create a cohesive space for them to live in together? Yeah, so as far as how we find people. I mean, our, our marketing engine that we've developed is, you know, nothing that you'd find too far. You know, we do digital ads, uh, you know, print ads, that kind of thing. And we do the screens. We do background check, credit check, income verification, employment verification um, to, to kind of provide that base level of, of screening for, for the hosts. Um, and finding people, the good news about our business is, you know, I don't want to say it's, it's easy and we have a great marketing team who does it and they do a great job, but Turns out there's a lot of people who need affordable housing. So at the very least, it's it's a stocked mm -hmm. pond. Um, and then it's interesting, you know, we get that question a lot as far as how do you, you know, are you matchmaking this kind of thing? And you know, actually, we don't. It's first come, first serve. There's there's legal reasons for that around kind of fair housing law and um, and so on, and, and also just the perception of kind of fair housing uh, complaints and so on. We don't want to be uh, seen as saying, oh, you know sorry, Matthew, you know, you can't move in because, you know, if this is all women in this property, okay, can't do that. Like that's, you know, I would argue uh, at least borderline. The other piece of it is um, you actually kind of want it to be random in a way. Like I, I think giving uh, residents coming in power over what kind of house to move into and who's in so they can self-select is great. But, you know, we, we've done a lot of research on this front. And if you speak to most universities today, and you say, oh, how do you match people? They say, latest literature says you don't. You let it be random because if uh, if you and I are moving into the same house and I say, you know, we're going to be roommates, I'm like, oh, you know, good because I'm messy and Matthew said he's clean, so this would be perfect. And it's like, you know, we've been, you know, there's this false sense of uh, like, oh, this algorithm has placed us and it's all going to be great and I have high expectations um, that the system worked. Well, actually no one really knows the system that works. You know? And you as a clean person may be really mad to be living with me as a messy person. So what universities do today almost uh, to completely is to just randomly put people together and let people go in and say, hey, I, it's on me to make this work. There's no algorithm doing the work. It's on me as an adult to, and, hey, there's a release valve. You know, if you and I aren't getting along, you know, I transfer, so on and so forth. You know, it's it's not a forever. You know, it's not it's not a marriage, right? You know, it's just a semester, what have you. But um, so yeah, now most universities actually don't do matching. You know, to the extent that they do any of it, it's it's at a very very high level. Um, you know, most universities are co-ed now, in part because they've realized that men and women living together at least make the men live a little bit cleaner. So so we do the same thing. It's first come first served, and you know, our view is residents they're adults we should treat them like adults and it's you know we're not arranging marriages we're putting people in the same place so they've got to work out issues on their own we give them tools to do that messaging tools and chore checklists and all those sorts of things to to make it as easy as possible but um, matching is really 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 hard and trusting adults to act like adults is actually a lot easier and more effective 
Nice. And that, some of the things, other things come to mind too is like, you know, when you guys are like, they're getting to self select, or not self select, but they're getting randomized. Actually, cool. Because for example, let's say, you know, you like, you're a sports guy, you like sports, all these things. And I'm a tech guy and I just want to be at home. But like, I might open up and say, hey, I actually want to learn more about that and how to do that and become your friend and hang out and say, hey, can we go do that together and like, you know, help each other? And, or if opposite too, like, you want to learn more about computer science, tech, and everything else, you might ask me questions and become, you know, connected to different people that you normally wouldn't have been connected to otherwise. And that's kind of cool too, the randomness of, you know, meeting new friends in different spaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think another thing I think about too is okay, one benefit too I see too as a renter, for example, if I get a single film, a single house, or and I want to rent with someone, I, I might go on Craigslist. That's harder because you really don't know them. And then the next challenge would be, hey, how's their credit? How's their financials? What happens if they now I'm on a lease with someone else? I don't really know. Or even a friend you do know, but you don't really know their financials, what their means are exactly. And what happens if they default on you? It's your name's on it too. But in right. the co-living space, it's different. I would assume it's different because you're individually liable to that part of with pad split rather within rather than the landlord itself. So then exactly. there's more yeah. comfortability in that sense. Okay, well, this roommate's bad. Hey, pad split, kick them out. They're not paying rent and they're yeah. messy and they're violating everything. Exactly. And and I mean one of the things that, that's absolutely right. You know, we decouple the the commitment. So individuals are committed. You know, you're not in it as a house, even if you're in it together as far as cleaning goes on. So that's definitely true. And the other piece is, you know, we look at us as a vehicle for, for financial independence for folks. So we do, you know, the demographic we serve oftentimes is unbanked, you know, about 40% are unbanked. And oftentimes, even if they're banked, they're very thin file, right? They don't, they don't have much of a credit history. So we do credit reporting as a service to our residents. And the idea is, you know, if you're making weekly payments, you know, it's more than four a month, very quickly over the course of just a few months, you can really build your credit score, especially if you're thin file. So, our, you know, 88% of our residents are improving their credit score, you know, oftentimes by over 100 points. And, you know, it's not only are you decoupled from what your, you know, the other person in the house might do, but you have kind of this opportunity to get a ton of data points reported to the bureaus very quickly. So you can kind of move up the housing continuum and, you know, build your credit score to the point where you're, you know, ready to get your own apartment and, and move up. Because we, our view is, you know, co-living is a price play. People do it because they want to share, they want to save money, you know, they want to, you know, build their savings, you know, but eventually people want their own space and they want privacy. So how do we kind of enable that journey for people? Yeah. And I think about too, um, some benefits for the, for, especially for tenants too, with this benefit, mm -hmm is you know when you think about traditional the cost and everything now and you look at passport like hey that's a new opportunity for me and i can live in different spaces i see this house is already furnished and ready to go i can move in anytime and you're helping me build my credit report and you know i have a thin file and you know paying weekly and makes it easier too and less to manage it seems less stressful and more beneficial to them so like it seems like you guys are trying to create a win-win situation for everyone while trying trying to reduce the liabilities for both side parties which is pretty cool and i think it's a different newer method for investing in real estate and um, mm. you know how do we let more people know about the co-living space versus like you know airbnb versus um you know traditional housing and like how do we you know educate that side for them yes you know it's an interesting question um i mean we talk to a lot of investor groups and, and you know have forums like this to to reach out to people some of it's you know you learn by doing that's definitely kind of part of it and we've had people kind of get together to do a to do a house you know landlord groups doing one as as a team or through syndication um, which which is fine but you know it definitely you know, takes conversation we're you know we're involved on that front 
you know, we, uh, we have some resources on our website, you know, get padsplit.com and kind of read some of the case studies and so on, you know, learn a little bit about the, the stories of the, the people in the houses and kind of what they're doing. But, uh, you know, some of it's just, I, I think for a lot of people, yeah, just kind of taking that first step to say, you know, it, it seems different and new and co-living is a little bit of a buzzword, you know, or shared housing and people think, oh, it's like a new asset class. And then you said, but, but you've done this before, right? You're like, oh, you know, yeah, actually I did. And yes, yeah, oh, it's like student housing, but for people who aren't students, like, oh, right. yeah, I kind of get how that works. And, you know, we've got our own little quirks and so on, but it's, uh, you know, we've got some unique and proprietary technology for how we tackle the problem, but it's, you know, the fundamental idea of like, oh, I'm living in a space with other people and we're, we're sharing space so I can pay less money. Okay. Yeah. I, I kind of get that. And you kind of get people to think about it in, in terms of their own experience. And it, it's sort of a, a pretty critical unlock a lot of times. Um, but yeah, we're always, always looking for, you know, people to talk to and, you know, spread the good word. That's for sure. Nice. Uh, yeah, it definitely. I'm really interested in that model too. And looking at the numbers for myself is like, this makes sense for a lot of my, mm -hmm. myself and my clients. Right. Um, so we're kind of digging into that market, but at the same time, I want to ask you a couple questions before we wrap up too. Like, sure. what do you think about the market in general right now? Like they're just the real estate market. Do you think it's going up? It's going to crash. It's, it's just slowly going to peak down. And like, how does that affect housing and rental market and even co-living? Yeah. So you know, we're affected by the same kind of macroeconomic uh, factors as everyone else. So, you know, if U.S. real estate's up, uh, I don't know, 20% year over year, that's affecting our investors who are now buying 20% more than they were last year. Um, I don't foresee a crash by any means. I think, uh, you know, anyone who's uh, in the market today, the last crash was too recent. You know, a lot of the people who have resources today have resources because they did really well after the last crash. You know, so there's, it's just too new in people's minds so that even if you had, I, I don't think we will continue to have appreciation at the pace we've had over the last couple of years. I think that's unsustainable. Um, you know, there's COVID reasons for that. There's kind of inflation reasons for that that we can, we can talk to, but, you know, I think, uh, I, I don't think the rate of growth is sustainable, but I think in general, you might have a little bit of a slowdown, but I, I certainly am not worried about anything kind of catastrophic. You know, I still think we're probably about 5 million homes short in the United States for what we really need from a housing supply standpoint. And there's, it's still very tough to build homes is the reality of it. I mean, you see a lot of policymakers, uh, both at the state and federal levels and, you know, local levels and so on. I mean, you actually look back, I was reading a uh, policy document from HUD from the Reagan administration the other day that you look at is so fresh. All, none of the, nothing's changed. You know, it's uh, this is, I think, uh, 82 when it was published. And you look at it and you're like, like, yeah, you know, local regulations and permitting and zoning really makes it hard to build new housing supply. And we need to liberate that. And you're like, okay, well, that was, uh, you know, 40 years ago and we're still saying the exact same thing. So it's, it's a hard challenge. And I don't think that's going to get a whole lot easier. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, there'll be more foreclosures, you know, that'll loosen things up a bit. You know, there's some new build starts, you know, that'll loosen things up a bit, but, you know, even if there's a bit of a slowdown um, and a bit more supply on the market, I mean, right now inventory around here is maybe six weeks of inventory, whereas maybe six months is probably a healthy level. And I, and I think that's broadly true in a lot of, uh, a lot of major metro areas today. I, I think that, that will grow and there'll be a little bit of uh, not necessarily downward pressure, but less upward pressure on prices. But uh, yeah, it's tight. You know, I sure, 
I sure wouldn't mind if it were, you know, shake a little inventory loose, that's for sure. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think the number one thing is there's not enough housing period. The mm -hmm. global economy, people are people are developing. There's more and more money out there. And the fact that population is just growing in at a global scale, there's going to, it's going to be really hard. And I see even though there's dips, it's still going to keep going up. Like, you know, you want to be in good cities, metropolitan areas, the price is not going to just drop suddenly for what reason? Even if there's major foreclosures, there's still a lot of money out there at play and the world's getting smarter. There's more money being involved and people will yeah. move, you know. So that's how I see it. One last question I want to ask you too, especially as a business entrepreneur and, mm -hmm. you know, your company has over 50 employees. How do you successfully scale your business from a startup to grow a, a real company? What's a, you know? I, I was going to ask you the same question. I have no idea. No, <laughs> and, and scary enough, you know, I think even just yeah. in the time, we're up over 100 people now. So, wow. yeah, we've certainly been growing uh, like crazy, which even just hearing that come out of my mouth is a little yeah, bit uh, kind of shocking. Thank you. That's a um, lot of people to manage, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. So, it's, uh, so you know, I, again, I we're still, we're still trying to figure it out. But certainly part of it is just kind of uh, is – getting the right people together from the start, you know, your kind of leaders and, and people you can uh, trust to have good judgment and make decisions and so on. And, you know, to some point, part of the reason I'm shocked that we have a hundred people is when we started, you know, I had to meet every single person, interview every single person. It was a ton of work. And now I'm like, who are these 10 people that this other person has brought on? You know, you kind of have that same kind of exponential growth from that. Um, you know, and certainly, you know, lining around a vision, you know, we are a, uh, we're a company, you know, we have a profit and loss statement, and, you know, all those things. We do all the kind of boring stuff that every every company does. But, you know, for us, it's about always kind of hearkening back to why we do what we do, both as a company and, and you know, as individuals, because it's maybe a little different for me than it is for someone else. But, you know, I have the reason that I, I kind of lean into it every morning um, and the reason I'm leaning into it late at night, you know, every night. So so that's kind of really important. But, you know, and then I, I guess the last piece is just we've always had this idea that this was going to be a big thing. You know, there was a, there was a time perhaps early on where we said, you know, we're just starting out. We said, you know, Hey, is this going to be a niche play where we do a few houses and it's going to be a, a real estate investment? Hey, maybe that would have been fine. We probably would have been profitable already. You know, maybe we're doing okay. But, you know, from the early days we looked at it and said, look, we're building for scale. It's going to make it hard. It's going to be a dumpster fire every day in a lot of ways. We're going to lose a lot of money building things before we need it, you know, and all that piece. But we've always seen this as, hey, this is a, uh, this is a company that's going to be huge and is going to be uh, is going to be everywhere. You know, we're not a regional play and we're not a, a niche play. You know, we wanted to build this thing into a monster, and um, you know, to the point where it's, hey, this is something everyone's heard of, and there's an IPO and that whole bit, and. Uh, even when it sounded insane, you know, and it was just a couple of us looking around a, a table at, and we're the entire company. Um, but we always kind of had in our minds that, um, you know, this kind of deep conviction that, you know, it was kind of a win big or, <laughs> or die trying, you know. Um, and uh, not that we haven't made mistakes along the way, because uh, we don't have enough time in this podcast to go through, you know, things I'd like to do over. But I think that was what we got right from the start was, uh, just kind of having this, you know, it's a big problem and it needs a big audacious uh, solution. And it means kind of uh, just just shooting for it. 
I agree. I think you guys are on the right track too. When I look, I've been in real estate for 14 years as an investor and as an agent and you know broker, right? And I see mm-hmm. what you're doing. I think is really great, and especially targeting workforce housing, which is really much needed across the country. There need, there needs to be way more housing, way easier, mm-hmm. way more ability for you know tenants to get into the right places they want to live in. They should enjoy really nice spaces too and be able to afford it and find the right solutions for them at a way which also helps the investors and create less liability. And this mm-hmm. is one of them I see. Um, you know, I think in terms of like the businesses, like, you know, when you came from the US um, Marines, you know, US Marines has a really good mission statement, right? And they really ingrain it in you to really learn it. And when I talk to team leaders, I ask them, do you guys have a really good mission vision statement? Are you guys ingraining that to your people? Like Army, Navy, Marines do? No, mm-hmm. most people say no, right? Why not? Isn't that one thing they really believe in? And when you have the whole team, believe in that one thing, they're going to do everything they can to make it really successful, mm-hmm. right? So that's a really big thing for leadership to really like help instill and create the culture and the drive because when you have the mission, nothing else will matter. You're just going to hit it, right? Right, yeah, I know exactly. Yeah, and I do guess- you remember the, what the US Marines uh, mission statement is? Well, so, you know, if you really want to go back to our seven missions in the National Security Act of 1947, I could walk you through it. But, uh, yeah, I would, you know, bore the, bore the whole team. But, uh, but yeah, and I mean, it's, you're right. And, I mean, the one thing um, is, or I maybe mean, there's a couple things uh, in that, you know, it's, it's about the actions, you know. And uh, I think one of the challenges that a lot of organizations have is when you get to a certain size, it's more about um, – you know, is it the appearances of doing the right thing or is it about doing the right things? And it has to be about doing the right things. You know, it's not about the spin. It's not about, you know, uh, the window dressing or, or whatever. You know, people kind of get cynical and they say, hey, you know, and, and I mean, to be, in fairness, you know, I saw this in the Marine Corps too, you know, because it's still a big organization of, you know, when I left almost 200,000 people, um, it's a little bit smaller now, but, you know, it's, but, the idea is to fight and win the nation's wars. You know, our business is in creating affordable housing. You know, it's not about raising money. It's not about these tangential things. It's not about having a great press release or, or what have you. Um, success for us is people in rooms that they can afford. You know, that is that is success. It is, it is literal, tangible things. Uh, you got to do a million things to get there and all these, you know, uh, you know, you have to build the technical product, you have to do the marketing and, you know, do your bookkeeping, you know, the, the, all that stuff is real. But the idea is it's not about impressing people with, uh, you know, hey, we're here to do this, we're here to do that. It's, you know, it's about housing units, you know, it's about creating new ones. It's about, uh, you know, attacking this crisis. It's not about uh, appearances. So kind of having that same sort of singular drive and, and also accepting the fact that it's a tough business and, uh it's, you can't have a zero defect mindset, certainly, because it's, uh, you know, the reality of being in, it's, you know, low income housing business is you're going to deal with challenges, you know, whether it's maintenance, whether it's uh, residents who give you a tough time, you know, our, our residents are people with real problems and, you know, they'll let you know about them <laughs> sometimes. So it's, uh, you know, you have to be tolerant of mistakes and uh, that, that are made with kind of the right intentions, too. Cool. I appreciate your feedback on that too. And really, you know, um, I think we had a great conversation today and learned a lot about, you know, co-living spaces and how to deal with it and like workforce housing, which is, you know, really important factor. I appreciate you being on our show today. How do people reach out to you? So I'm easy to find. I'm just frank at padsplit.com. So we're not too, uh, too inventive on that front, but uh, you can either reach out to me directly or you can go right to our website, you know, padsplit.com, create an account. 
our uh, much more helpful and friendly sales team will be in touch very quickly if uh, if you do so. Uh, but yeah, feel free to reach out to me directly. Would love to kind of have the chat. And you know, this is uh, this is my calling. It's what I do every day. So yeah, always always happy to talk uh, talk pads with anybody. Cool. So, you know, especially investors out there, you guys looking for um, to create other co-living spaces, look at investments, look at, you know, out-of-state uh, properties. It's kind of cool. Like, for example, if I wanted to buy a property, I might start talking to you, Frank, mm-hmm. and say, hey, I want to buy this property in this area. And Pat, Pat Split is there. Let's run the numbers together. It makes sense. It's more than traditional short-term housing. Hey, can, let's consider buying this property, you know? Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Everyone out there, be sure to check out our show, The Truth About Real Estate, on any Apple platform and other platforms, and we'll see you guys in the next one.